this is Peter calling from the south of Sweden. Just to let you know that you're listening to the Horror Movie Podcast, where they're dead serious about horror movies. Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. This is a bi-weekly show that's released every other Monday, and this is episode 173. This episode of Horror Movie Podcast is brought to you by our Movie Podcast Network patrons. On Horror Movie Podcast, you get in-depth horror movie reviews for classics and new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. This is Gilman Joel Robertson, and my co-hosts are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman Josh, and you're so smooth and slippery. I don't want to know what that's from. <laughs> we'll find out soon right on this episode of horror movie podcast it's an at your mercy episode where we turn the show over to you the listeners and then watch or review movies you requested nay demanded that we cover and that's exactly what we're going to do also you'll get our collector's crypt segment listener feedback and we're giving away three digital download copies of Pet Cemetery, so stay tuned for that. All right, Josh, so here we are. We're doing an At Your Mercy episode. I am excited because while I know this isn't the first for HMP At Your Mercy, it is the first for the Gill Man. Yeah, this is a format that we've done three times previously, uh, and they were all each a little bit different. The most recent one was... Uh, library picks so we had our listeners go to their local library and find you know their favorite obscure films that popped up at their local library like a masterpiece theater type thing or a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean we got some pretty good selections uh we had ghost story from 1981 nice. which jay reviewed uh that was courtesy of allison the horror unicorn we had society which uh kagan recommended and sent me the blu-ray for actually and then cat people from 1942 which was dave's choice submitted by shani dreadful so that was a fun episode that was 115 previous to that we did an episode um where we covered the shrine and extra and dave unfortunately wasn't but that was just me and jay and then the first time we did this we covered alucarda the ordeal murder party and martin all of those listener picks nice. so it's been kind of fun the idea i guess being is that we're watching films that we hadn't previously seen and so uh we're you know delving deep into some deeper cuts and it's been a lot of fun in the past and it's always fun to from listeners what they'd like us to review and it was fun this time too to see uh, you know the picks they have you know it's one of those things where you think geez 
there's just so many movies to cover out there. You know, it's hard because we review so many films every week. And still you just, you look at these lists that were submitted by the listeners and it feels like we're just at the tip of the iceberg. It feels like so. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. Do we, should we go through some of the submissions this time that we, that we didn't choose? Yeah, I would love to do that. But first, I just want to ask, where is the library that curates titles like Society? Because I want to go there. That is awesome. <laughs> Salt Lake right. City, baby. That is fantastic. <laughs> so uh, here's some that we didn't pick because we've either covered them in the past or they're upcoming uh, reviews on the show. American Wolf in London is one that we'll be covering in the future. Attack the Block will be covering in the future. The Beast Must Die will be covering in the future. Cemetery Man is for a scheduled upcoming show. Chopping Mall, that's one we've reviewed already. That was on our Black Friday episode back in the day. That was one of my favorite episodes we'd done. And I love that movie. I love it. It was a fun one. Curtains, uh, we covered in our 80 slasher episode. Now that was just Jay that reviewed that. So we, we may come back around to it, but that has been on the show before L bar is one that I've reviewed on the show before. The faculty is one that um, is slated for an upcoming body snatchers episode as is invasion of the body snatchers, which was <laughs> suggested. Uh, the hitcher is one that we, we've talked a lot about doing a horror on the road episode and that's one that we would definitely be covering there the fly from 1986 we've covered that one before that was on our science goes too far episode which was a lot of fun Mm -hmm. to do Uh, the monster we've covered a few times on the show Uh, nosferatu the vampire now that's one i wanted to do a a double feature of the 1922 nosferatu with shadow of the vampire this is the Werner herzog Mm -hmm version from 1979 figure well might as well make that a triple feature that could be a fun pairing as well that's, that's going to be an awesome episode I yes can't wait for that that's one. gonna be really That'll cool be a lot of fun return of the living dead that that will be with the cemetery man the zombie comedy episode ashley we got your back we're doing it's coming it coming up that's right shadow of the vampire was recommended by matt rawlings uh texas chainsaw massacre is definitely going to be coming up in a future franchise review and some upcoming October. So it's all coming your way. We had, I believe as of 6 PM tonight, when we recorded 98 submissions. Wow. Yeah. Now a lot of those were from, you know, some people submitted several, so those aren't from all from individual listeners, but yeah, we had 98 submissions to choose from. And um, I guess maybe as we get into our reviews, we can talk a little bit about the listener who, gave us the suggestion and why you made the choice that you did. Maybe that can be part of our review tonight. And then of course we'll put the entire list in the show notes. So people who are interested in what other listeners are recommending can go check those out. But this is the biggest surprise of tonight, which we haven't talked about anywhere yet. This is actually going to be part one, or I guess this is part four a of at your mercy, because we're going to do two back to back episodes of listener reviews each with a collector's crip cold from the listener suggestions for a total of eight listener picks over the next two episodes. So we took your recommendations very seriously and we're excited to talk about all of these movies. Yes. And can I just state the thing that I think everyone's thinking maybe uh, after you went through that whole list of movies that have not been covered yet on HMP, how in the hell 
have you never covered Texas Chainsaw Massacre? And I know, and I'm sure you've addressed <laughs> it at some point, but I, I know it's Dave's favorite. It was Jay's favorite. It's in my top 10. I mean, I wasn't here before, so I guess that's my excuse for not pushing it. But I guess what I'm getting at is, as a listener and a fan of this show for years myself, why was that never covered? I mean, I would have, I'd have to defer to Dave on that one. Uh, You know what? It's one of those, it's one of those things. I mean, yes, it's something we always knew we would get around to. And we just said, oh, we'll get around to it as a franchise. It's not always the strongest. It has a miserably awful movie in there um, that I have been forced to watch three times. (laughs) already <laughs> and i just couldn't bring myself to to justify watching it a fourth you're not talking about part two no i'm not talking about part two i'm not and you know what i'm slowly coming around on part two there okay. are still things about it i'm not too big on and i do kind of like leatherface i like part three as well yes i'm talking about the one starring two oscar winners <laughs> yeah but not even as a franchise review i just feel like at some point that there was no feature review of it. I just think that's fascinating. It well, is. It is. And, and it's something that we, we do have to we do have to correct. Now, the one that was recommended is actually the 2003 Texas Okay. Chainsaw okay. Yeah. I remember um, liking that quite a bit, actually. Yeah. I, yeah. And I didn't mind that either. You know what? That, so it is going to be it'll be a fun one. And I think I think that's one. Yeah. We we're talking about maybe for this uh, this October. I mean, I, what I will say from my point of view is. We talked about it in depth on our first two episodes because it was on Jay's top sure. 10 list and Dave's top 10 list. And so we really, on those episodes, we really delved into our picks, you know, and sure. talked about why they were right. on our list. And then I don't like doing random shows. And oftentimes, other than the Frankensteining episodes, we haven't really just done random reviews unless they're. That's fair. That's fair. Especially of classic films. You know, if there was a classic film that we knew we wanted to get to, we would build an entire episode around it. Mm-hmm. So it was always looking for the right themed episode to pair it with or doing it as a franchise review, you know? And then the franchise reviews have been done kind of in the order of fans requesting them, mm-hmm. you know, listeners to the show requesting them. And so, you know, it was, it was not high on the list as a franchise for the people were interesting. Okay. You know, asking no, that's for, fair. So that's fair. I guess puppet master was more popular. <laughs> I was thinking it. I didn't say it, but I was thinking it. Yeah. So, I mean, in defense of Puppet Master and Child's Play, those were both selected because, and Hellraiser too, they were all selected because there were, there were new, new releases yeah. coming out. That makes sense. Franchise. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And I love Child's Play. I do not think it needs to be thrown in there. Is no, it? no, no. I, I do too. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Child's Play as well. It's n- nowhere near Puppet Master, but sure. <laughs> Just, <laughs> Just kidding. Hey guys, Vicious Victor here from the strange high house in the mist in the hills of Seattle. One of my top 20 movies of all time, of any genre, is The Innocence from 1961. It's based on a novella by Henry James that's been adapted into plays and numerous movies under the novella's original title, The Turn of the Screw. The Innocence from 61 was directed by Jack Clayton, who assembled a wrecking crew of talent to help him knock this out of the park. It was shot by Freddie Francis, the guy who shot The Elephant Man. The script was written by Truman Capote, and it stars Deborah Kerr as a young governess who is hired to take care of two children 
in a beautiful Gothic country mansion that's way too big for them. In any case, she starts to pick up on some clues that this house may be haunted. I'm the type of guy who appreciates the faster pacing of modern movies, but I'm telling you, there is something inherently creepy about the way this movie is shot and sounds that raises it way above almost everything else from its time, or even today. Dr. Shock's review of this movie is featured on the movie's IMDb page, and it's great. But since this week you're at my mercy, I'd love to have a featured review with Dr. Shock bringing the science from his research in context with the other host's takes. It's hard to find this movie on streaming services, though there is a Criterion disc, so it's probably on the newly launched Criterion channel if you don't want to cough up the cash for the disc like I did. In any case, 10 out of 10, one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen, and to paraphrase Beetlejuice, it just gets better every time I see it. So, recommendation to buy. Thanks a lot, and if you like this movie and uh, you want to check out my other top 20 movies of all time, just go to my website at vhrodriguez.wordpress.com. Take care, guys. All right, so... Now that we've discussed what At Your Mercy is all about, and, and I, as the resident newbie, get to experience for the first time, let's go ahead and kick it over to Dr. Shock and uh, hear his review. What movie are you covering, Dave, and who did you get the idea from? All right. The movie I chose for this first installment of At Your Mercy is Dr. Terror's House of Horrors in 1965 amicus uh horror anthology it was recommended by seth on twitter actually yeah i've got seth's tweet here uh seth is at beer not one on twitter and he says hi i am new to your podcast and community so i'm not sure if you might have covered this in a past episode some good older anthology horror films such as and he recommends three here dead of night 1945 Flesh and Fantasy, 1943, and your choice, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, 1965. Yeah, and, and the reason I chose this, I chose it for, for th- well, for a couple reasons. It, it's a, it's a uh, horror anthology from Amicus. I found out, doing some research, it was the first horror anthology that Amicus ever put out. Nice. And it has a really strong cast, which I'll talk about in a minute. Uh, but primarily it's because I have it on Blu-ray and I've never watched it. <laughs> so it gave me an opportunity to watch it. Um, Perfect. But you know what? Also, Dead of Night is a tremendous movie. I mean, I've seen that before and that is awesome. I really like Dead of Night. That is a great recommendation. Cool. Thank you, Seth. Yes, thank you. So, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, directed by Freddie Francis. Just to set it up, uh, five... Uh, gentlemen uh, get onto a railway uh, passenger car and they're settling in for the trip when it when they're joined by a sixth person an elderly man from uh, Germany who says his name is Dr. Shrek played by the great Peter Cushing Dr. Shrek it turns out uh, is is into the occult and especially tarot cards um, he, uh, accidentally drops his briefcase. The tarot cards comes out. Someone asks a question. He starts explaining to them how they work. He says he can read the future with four cards. He can read anybody's future with four cards, what they're going to experience in the very near future. 
And the fifth card will determine how they could change that future if it is something that they won't like. And as you can imagine, in a movie called uh, Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, not too many people are going to like their future. But like I said, it has a strong cast. Two of the people on the train are Christopher Lee, who plays a very arrogant art critic, and quite surprisingly, a rather young Donald Sutherland. As uh, as an American, I guess, living in England, who recently uh, met who he thinks is the woman of his dreams. Anyway, this is broken down along with the sort of wraparound segment set on the train. It's broken into five segments, one for each of the passengers. And looking on uh, Wikipedia here, they're broken down. The first one deals with an architect who is sent out to what used to be his old family home. He sold it on, uh, on this uh, Scottish island. And uh, the new owner has, wants to hire him to come out and make renovations. But when he gets there, he finds himself wrapped up in an old family curse that involves a werewolf. The next one is called Creeping Vine. Um, Bill, who's another passenger, uh, they just got back from vacation and they notice that there's this vine growing in their yard, and it's growing very, very quickly. But what's interesting is when Bill goes to cut it down, it fights back. And it even attacks the family dog. So he tries to get in touch with um, uh, some professionals, uh, some scientists who he, thinks can, who he hopes can help him. Um, but pretty soon, uh, this vine is even more out of control than anybody would have suspected. Uh, next up, there's a musician, a jazz musician who uh, has a gig uh, that takes him to the West Indies. This is, again, Shrek predicting his future, uh, where he finds himself uh, enamored with a voodoo ritual to the point that he is writing down the music. He wants to sort of turn that into one of his own uh, orchestrations. He's warned not to do it because it is the music given to them by a god. And the god will take his revenge if he tries to do that, of course. Um, the musician does not believe that. And there you go. Next up, uh, this is the one involving Christopher Lee, the art critic. He is particularly critical of a painter named Eric, played by uh, the great Michael Goh, I guess is, is how it's pronounced. Of course, he played Alfred in the, in the Batman films, and I know he was also in Horrors of the Black Museum. Just a really good actor. Well... Eric uh, ends up embarrassing uh, Christopher Lee's character publicly. And Christopher Lee takes his revenge in a rather violent way one night and ends up being chased or being haunted by the artist's disembodied hand. The artist lost his hand as a result of the accident. And the final one involves Donald Sutherland. He actually gets married to the woman he recently fell in love with in, in, this, uh, in this possible future, only to find out that she may be a vampire. And he goes to his colleague, uh, Dr. Blake, um, who Dr. Blake is the one who discovers she may be a vampire. And they have to decide how to handle this. Well, yeah, so you have five stories here. For me, the strongest, and you always get strongest... Uh, in an anthology, there's always some that just stand out is the first one with the werewolf. It's very Gothic. It has, it has a great atmosphere. And I thought it was just 
handled very well. I think it's the darkest of of all of the tales, to be honest with you. And I really liked the uh, the last one with the vampire because it had a pretty cool twist at the end of it. Um, of course, the special effects for the bad are not going to be all that strong, and they're not. But I did enjoy the twist in the story at the end. Creeping Vine was a little bit goofy, you know, um, people sort of being chased and, and trapped in their house by a, by a vine surrounding the house. Uh, but it did feature Bernard Lee, who played, I'm pretty sure, played M in a, a good number of the James Bond movies. Uh, he's one of the scientists who comes in and tries to help the family with this situation. Uh, voodoo is almost, it's, it's almost, it's mostly comedy. There's a lot of comedy in this one. And uh, even when uh, the voodoo spirits uh, begin to take their revenge, it's not particularly frightening. And anybody who sees the Christopher Lee section, Disembodied Hand, and does not think of the Michael Caine 1981 horror travesty, The Hand, that was all I could think of as I saw this particular sequence. The wraparound, though, is really interesting, and it's because you have all of the actors in a confined space playing the same characters that we saw in these possible futures. Plus, you have Peter Cushing giving a strong performance as Shrek, which, of course, is German for terror. And trying to explain that, that you know, and, and he, each time he pulls that fifth card to see how they can get out of this possible future, it's the same one for all of them, and it's not a good card. This also has a very interesting twist to it that I that I enjoyed. I liked that as well. Um, overall, I don't consider it the strongest of the Amicus anthologies. I still am a real big fan of Tales from the Crypt. Oh, yeah. That's probably my favorite Amicus. Um, and I think, Joel, we covered that on um, yes. the most recent Spooky Flicks. Fact. Yes, and it was my, my favorite... Of all the, I mean, I, there were several anthologies we covered. I loved, but that was my favorite, hands down, of all the ones we covered last year. Yeah, loved it. I and I agree. It's a top five with me too. I mean, of as far as overall anthologies, right up there with Creep Show, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is interesting. I just don't think it was strong enough in the individual segments. At least the three in the middle, they didn't quite do it for me, but. I like the concept of five different stories branching off into five different, very different directions. I thought that was really great. And Werewolf is extremely strong, and uh, Vampire is, uh, for me, a close second. Overall, I would give this a 6 out of 10. I say it is definitely worth a rental, and uh, I'm glad I finally had a reason to watch it. Very cool. Yes, and thank you, Dave. That was a great review. So now... It is my turn, my very first, at your mercy. So for my choice, I chose a suggestion from the Mad Cytologist. So he had two suggestions for me. The first one was The Kiss. And that is a 1988 film that I wanted to do. I had the vaguest recollection of seeing at least part of it. And I remember a scene where there's a car accident and a... Uh, leg that has been removed from a character and I remember it freaking me out as a kid because the way they shot there's something about the way they shot it but that was the only thing I remembered about the movie now I know the whole point of this though is that we were supposed to pick something we've never seen right I mean that's the theoretical idea here right guys I mean you can interpret it any way you want it is kind of a fun idea to take a recommendation from a listener that you were previously 
unaware of. That's it's what I try to do. It's what I try to do. And that was the direction I wanted to go ultimately as well. So I decided, okay, well, the kiss is available on DVD. No, we're streaming. So it's still relatively hard to find. Um, so I chose his other suggestion, which was the kindred from 1987. And I picked this because I, re- this is one of those video boxes, man. I remember so much in the video store. Mm. It is that baby bottle with that weird deformed fetus thing inside of it. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was creepy. Now I always though got this confused with, I believe it's prophecy. Isn't that the mutated yeah. bear nature mm-hmm. run amok kind of movie? Okay. Yep. Cause I think there's a, isn't there a similar look to the, the cover art for that. There's some sort of disfigured entity inside of some type of confinement. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, bear embryo something. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just remember I used to get the two movies confused. So on one level, I thought this movie was that movie for the longest time, and I never saw this. It's one of those that I always saw on the shelf. I just never got it. Uh, and, and so for whatever reason, it, so The Kindred is a 1987 American horror film directed, co-written, and co-produced by Jeffrey Obrow and Stephen Carpenter. No relation. And stars David Allen Brooks, Amanda Pays, Rod Steiger, and in a small part, but notable, is Kim Hunter, the actress who was in Streetcar Named Desire and Planet of the Apes. And yes, people, I did say Rod Steiger, as in In the Heat of the Night and The Pawnbroker and a lot of uh, other uh, fairly significant films, especially uh, in the 60s and I guess into the 70s. Uh, The movie was released in January of 1987, and it is basically the story of a scientist named John Hollins, who is the son of a highly respected scientist named Amanda Hollins, who's played by Kim Hunter. And uh, Amanda has had a really massive heart attack of some sort, and it put her in a coma. Well, she comes out of the coma briefly, and she tells her son that she needs him to do something because as it turns out, there's another scientist named Dr. Lloyd, Dr. Philip Lloyd, who is played by Rod Steiger, who has been working for years with Amanda and has been continuing their work in secret. Now, when she's distraught by all all of this news that this has been going on, I guess while she was uh, incapacitated. So she tells her son she needs to go to her home where her laboratory is and destroy all of her notes regarding her experiments and especially everything about this subject named Anthony, just it's Anthony. And then she sort of just quickly tells him, and you also have a brother <laughs> just kind of tells him and then ah, dead. Now I'm not giving anything major away. That's not a major spoiler. It happens pretty early in the movie. So that sort of sets everything in motion. So soon after her death, John, several of his friends who also happen to be fellow scientists, along with an outsider scientist that's uh, named Melissa played by Amanda Pays, who you may know from Leviathan. I think she had a part on the X-Files and, and some other things uh, who may have an ulterior motive. Uh, altogether, they go to visit Amanda's home slash laboratory where they begin to realize just how horrific the experiments of Dr. Hollins and Dr. Lloyd really were. So this movie is equal parts, mad scientist story and monster movie. Um, I would say the kindred is a product of its time. And that is not some backhanded compliment Uh, in in my world. That's actually a pretty good compliment. Uh, You know, it's got a decent amount of practical effects in it. uh, Puppet work, animatronics and whatnot related to the, the creature effects. And there are times where it's very indicative of its low budget 
or presumably low to modest budget. But it also works very effectively because I think one of the things that the directors do very smartly, in my my opinion, is that they hide a lot of it in shadow and uh, with, you know, light, like tricks of lighting and and they do a lot of things to trick your eye. So I think anything that had been really well lit would have uh, exposed just how cheaply it was all made. But for whatever reason, it works really well, in my opinion. So it's a fairly standard 80s horror movie. And honestly, that is kind of why I... I loved maybe a strong word, but I I was leaning towards the kind of loved it. There was something about it that I found endearing. It's the best way to put it. You know, it it's got that element where it sort of reminds me of maybe, you know, Friday the 13th part four or, uh, you know, pumpkin head or evil or evil dead, the original evil dead, or even obviously the remake where you've got this group of people, typically friends, they're going to this isolated place and they have to deal with some unnatural, force or thing that is going to theoretically destroy all of them. And speaking of evil dead, there are several kills and one in particular involving a car that are really reminiscent of that movie to the point Mm. where I almost, I'll just, I'll be polite and say homage (laughs) because you know, let's just say that there's a certain death in evil dead uh, that was also revisited uh, somewhat more tastefully in evil dead Two, involving a tree and right? and that isn't how it plays out in this one <laughs> per se, but it it reminded me of that. There's something about the effect and and the way it plays out that it just had. It was very reminiscent of that for me. So I really liked those aspects. And you know, like I said, they keep the character or the monster specifically. And there's more than actually you know not to give it away too much, but there are more. There's more than even one monster. In fact, you even get some level of tiny terrors in this movie because a lot of the creatures that as they refer to them as hybrids in the movie are things that quite honestly that image of the thing in the in the baby bottle on the poster is not that far off the mark i mean they're 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 not particularly huge but they uh they, they got a bad attitude i'll just tell you that they got a bad attitude so while they hide a lot of it as the movie progresses it sort of gets wetter and oozier and more gruesome as it goes to the point where by the end you know we're in full like almost to the end of the Cronenberg fly sort of territory as far as the level of potential body horror that's going on with one monster in particular. And I would even argue that there are Lovecraftian echoes in this movie. And, and specifically that reminded me of one of my personal favorite Lovecraft stories, which is shadow over Innsmouth. Now, not necessarily in the way the mythology of that story plays out, but there, when you see the movie, I'm sure you'll get it. But there are certain things, echoes that are very reminiscent of that story, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, and I can only assume that that was uh, on purpose. Now, the look and the feel of this movie, um, and this is sort of tying it all back into the reason why I really was excited to cover this particular movie. And especially the way I watched it was part of the fun for me because it was a copy off of a VHS on YouTube, which was pointed out to me courtesy of my good friend and co-host on Retro Movie Geek, Peter. He because he was going to help me track this down because here's the thing, people, this movie in the US anyway is only available on VHS. It's one of those movies. Josh, you know, you recently left me a message and we were talking about that back and forth. This is one of those movies that has never mm. gotten the DVD, let alone Blu-ray treatment 
at all, at least in the States. So I, I don't know if it's anywhere else. If those of you that are listening that are not in the U.S. could tell us if you have it available in your neck of the woods, it'd be cool to know. But everywhere I looked, this movie was nowhere to be found. And I have to admit that I am a complete and utter sucker for watching movies like this from this time period it, through that lo-fi window of VHS. They're just it adds to my enjoyment of them. Now, do I want to watch The Shining? Do I want to watch that necessarily on V? No, I, d- I don't need to watch that on VHS. I am really happy to watch that in as high a quality as possible. But for a movie like right. this, there's just something about it that adds to the aesthetic enjoyment. And honestly, because of the nature, I think, of the effects and, and the budget and everything else, I almost wonder if too high def would work against it. If it was too crisp, too clear, if you could sort of see all the the strings and duct tape, you might be inclined to be more critical of it. Whereas because I'm seeing it through that lo-fi window, it just made it for me far more enjoyable. So now they are talking about and have been apparently for quite a long time doing a Blu-ray of this. The one thing I checked, and I believe Peter mentioned this to me as well, and I tried to do a little research on it before we started, which was there was talk as recently as last year of this movie coming out. I think I believe it was supposed to come out last year, but everything I'm checking now says uh, to be determined or, or to be announced as when this Blu-ray is coming out. So I don't know if there's some kind of legal snafu. I don't know what's going on, but I would personally love to have this on Blu-ray packed with extras, commentaries, and just hear sort of the usual travails that people go through making a low budget movie of this type. But alas, we do not have that. And who knows when we will, but I think that the movie proves that physical media, especially VHS still has value. If nothing else, just from the purpose of us all being cinematic archivists and people who want to try to preserve this, because lest we forget, there have been many movies that are completely lost. And, you know, I feel like Scorsese has made sort of a second career out of trying to save movies. Now, most of the ones he's gone after, it's because, you know, the celluloid that they're on, you know, all, all the problems that that's had. But I feel like with a lot of these movies, if they don't continue to move up the technological tra- chain and VHS was the last thing they were in, if there's no preservation of that, they're going to be gone. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. And that's why we have companies like, vinegar syndrome and blue underground and synapse and and yeah those are the people doing the good work of b-movie you know genre films from yeah. the 80s i think yep. the preservation that that needs to take place i agree and honestly yeah. i was so i guess beside myself at the notion that this movie has the potential and it's mainly just because of the feeling i get when i think about visualizing the horror section of my video store. And I always saw this movie there. It was always there. And I wanted to be there for it. Okay. I'm just going to say it. I wanted to be there for this little VHS tape that could. And I went ahead (laughs) before I even had watched it for the show, found it on eBay. Somebody was selling a used copy that they claimed was very good uh, for $3 and 50 cents. I got it. (laughs) I won the bid. It's supposed to be here by the end of this week. I will add that to my collection. And then it comes up Blu-ray. Great. Then I know that, you know, we, we can continue to move forward down the technological pipeline. But until then, the Kindred on VHS, I say is the way to go. I give this movie a solid seven. Is it a great movie? Is it a movie that will change your life? Is it a movie that you have not seen a thousand times for? No. But I think there's something fun about the movie, about some of the... Uh, 
awkward dialogue and about the fact that you've got actors like Rod Steiger and Kim Hunter popping up in this thing, which I still was like watching going, wow, that's kind of amazing. It's sort of like when you get what was Richard Burton in. I know it's one of Dave's all time favorites, Exorcist to the Heretic or, (laughs) you know, you know, or, or maybe actors that weren't quite of the same level in the films they had been in and whatnot but i think of them as being somewhat iconic so you get like what don wells from gilligan's island who shows up in the town that dreaded sundown you know, you get these actors that you don't really think of at all in that context uh, and it's just it, it always is kind of an interesting experience so like i said kindred 1987 i give it a solid seven check it out very cool if you can if, if you could track down the vhs of it nice that's awesome all right so there you have it and let's go ahead and kick it on over to Wolfman Josh and get his At Your Mercy review. Okay, so the film that I chose is called Bedeviled. And listener Juan has recommended this to me several times over the years. And I never looked it up, Juan. I'm sorry, I apologize. But each time you talk about it, for some reason in my mind, I thought you were talking about Bedazzled from 2000, <laughs> a film with Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth Hurley, where she's like uh, the devil or something like that. <laughs> for some reason, that was the film in my mind that you were talking about. And in our last interaction about this, which was probably over a year ago, you said, it's not that. It's a different film. It's not Bedazzled. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So I looked it up this time as the recommendations started rolling in and uh, Juan did recommend this again, but also grave Robert recommended it. And it was actually grave Robert's recommendation that I noticed first grave. Robert said, I'm so happy you guys are doing another listener pick. My picks would be attack the block bedeviled and may the devil take you. I enjoyed these way more than I expected. I don't know if you reviewed any of these or not. And so one thing I was looking at for my choice was, were there any films that more than one person recommended? And in fact, there were about four or five films that more than one person recommended. So I thought, okay, I'm going to choose films that more than one person recommended. Unfortunately, a lot of those choices, because so many people submitted multiple movies, they crossed over with people who had recommended films that you guys had chosen. So I didn't want to, choose one person's movie twice and not pick another person. So this was the last one that was left um, that didn't have a crossover. So I thought, okay, I will definitely review Bedeviled. I looked it up and to my surprise, there was this 2016 Bedeviled film that just looked atrocious to me. It says five friends are terrorized by a supernatural entity after downloading a mysterious app. And I thought, not interested at all in that. Then I realized, okay, no, that's the wrong bedeviled. They're talking about <laughs> bedeviled 2010. At least that was the one that um, Juan had recommended to me. I hope that's the same one that grave Robert was recommending. Um, if not grave Robert, I apologize. I'm not reviewing your film tonight, <laughs> but I'm at least reviewing Juan's, which is the 2010 film, a Korean film, which as Juan knew when he probably first recommended this to me is right up my alley. Uh, This is a film like a lot of Korean cinema that crosses the line between drama, horror, and thriller. Now, of course, you know, there's a wide variety of Korean films. And I, when I talk about it in the, and I've talked about it on the show in the past, I tend to kind of lump them all together, which isn't fair because there's, there's such a wide variety of films. You can have a high octane zombie film like Train to Busan. You can have a batch crazy, puzzle box revenge film like old boy 
Uh, but my favorite mode of Korean horror is this really low key borderline drama, borderline thriller horror film uh, that has like this weird comedic tonal quality as well. And they're just able to ride the line between creepy, comedic, terrifying all at once. And, and, and they're able to transition between those tones. So effortlessly, there's just something that I love about it. Films like memories of a murderer or mother is one of my all time favorite Korean films. And those are the types of films I really champion. The Wailing was one of my most favorite horror films from recent years. Uh, And it was from Korea. This film I'd never heard of. And I put it on and I started watching it. And I was about 40 minutes into the film when I thought, there hasn't been really a lick of horror here. It's a very disturbing drama. Um, it feels like a kind of a typical art house drama where just awful things are happening to good people. Uh, and you know, but nothing that was particularly identified as a horror film. They were definitely horrific. We were talking about things like child abuse, um, spousal abuse. Uh, the wife is cheating on the husband, the husband's sleeping with prostitutes. He beats his wife. He's potentially molesting the child. Like there's a lot of awful things going on that are certainly horrific, but they just really feel like kind of that heavy art house, you know, Sundance type of drama film that you're going to go watch and just be brutalized. Um, So it's a bit of a slow burn and I wasn't watching the clock, but I did want to note kind of when the horror kicked in. So when it did kick in, I did make a note of it at the one hour and 15 mark. It suddenly turns into a pretty brutal horror film and i don't want to talk about specifically what genre the horror is in it isn't a very specific kind of subgenre, but i I don't want to give it away because that's kind of the joy of these korean films is that you're not really sure what you're watching a lot of the time you know and it gets pretty brutal by the end i mean it it's it completely changes gears at that one hour and 15 minute mark and you know it's deep into it by the end it's just like a gory mess so quite an interesting film the basic storyline is a young woman who seems to not care much for others she is a loan officer she lives in the city of seoul she has the opportunity to help uh, kind of destitute woman who has come to her for help with a loan who she's potentially promised help in the past the woman's found herself in a tough spot. It kind of reminds me of the beginning of Drag Me to Hell, to be honest. And she turns this lady down and, and really kind of screws this lady over. Later, we see that she witnesses uh, kind of a public assault take place at a club. She is one of the few witnesses. The police bring her in to uh, do a police lineup, and she could identify these guys, but she chooses not to identify them. So we really see that she's a character who's kind of in it for herself. Um, She's our protagonist, but she's not particularly likable. And so it's interesting because at about the 30 minute mark in, we do kind of switch protagonists. So she, she is let go from her job. Uh, She's asked to take a indefinite hiatus because of something that happens at her work. And so she decides she's going to go back to this beautiful, small rural Island where her grandfather lived and where she spent a lot of time as a child. So she, 
takes a boat out to this island. It's very beautiful. And there she meets a young woman her age who had been a childhood friend of hers on the island before. And we get to know this other lady. And at first, the other lady seems kind of creepy. But as time goes on, as I mentioned, she kind of shifts to be our main character. And the woman who we've seen as our protagonist, and that is the character of Hey Wan, played by Ji Seung Wan, she kind of takes a back seat and she's pretty inactive for the majority of the runtime. And we're really following Bok Nam, who is played by Seo Young Hai. And it's interesting because we completely switch over and it's and it's a really weird thing. And for a lot of the runtime of the movie, I was like, wait, why were we introduced to this other character early on as though it was her film? when she really has very little to do with the goings on that we're following throughout the rest of the story. Because as I mentioned previously, a lot of the story is about Bucknum's life and she's a battered wife. Her child is potentially being abused. Her husband is sleeping with prostitutes. She's treated essentially as a slave by the older women in the village who uh, have her working in the fields, digging potatoes. There's some interesting racial elements you know, in South Korea, keeping your skin nice is a favorite pastime. The skincare uh, industry is huge in South Korea, and a lot of Americans, even, it's a very hip thing to kind of follow South Korean skin regimens these days. Uh, you know, my wife works with a lot of millennials, and a lot of the younger women all follow like these South Korean skincare blogs and. YouTube channels and stuff. And um, <clears throat> also they know what they're talking about. They keep their skin in great condition, but there's an interesting racial component where the whiter skin is prized. And these more rural people who live on the Island, they're darker skin because they work in the sun. And so they're very tan. And in fact, you can pretty much tell all the actors are wearing heavy, either makeup or self tanner to make themselves look tan. It does not look natural, but you know, there's an interesting contrast between the people on the island versus this woman coming from Seoul and their skin tone. And it's made a lot of in the story, you know, it's not like a, it's not a side note. It's definitely something that, that they notice, you know, she is a person with very soft hands. You know, she is a person who's not worked in the fields like they have. And there are some interesting dynamics going on with these characters. But again, most of this is playing like a drama and as much as all these awful things are happening to book Nam, she takes it for the most part. But we, as we start to see over time, she, what she really wants is for this girl who she's felt a really strong bond with since childhood. Hey, want to take her back to Seoul. She has a dream of going to Seoul and she wants to get out of the situation, sneak away from her husband, take her daughter and get off the Island. And, you know, some bad things happen along the way, and there's kind of a point of no return in this film at the about one hour, 15 minute mark. And then suddenly things shoot off in an entirely different direction, and it gets really violent, really fast, and it's just a bloodbath to the end. So uh, it was an interesting experience. I think if I were going to recommend something like this to our listeners, I would probably recommend different Korean films first, something like I saw the devil. If you want a bloodbath, uh, something like uh, memories of murder or mother, if you want like an interesting drama thriller, those will be my go-to films. 
this was good. It was interesting, and it's one I hadn't seen, so I, re- I really appreciate the recommendation. It's also streaming with a subscription for free with Amazon Prime, so it's something that's very easily accessible, and I would just recommend uh, people rent it. And for me, I would give this one probably a 6.5. It's a strong film. Like, it's a really beautiful film. And the narrative structure that's so weird that I mentioned does come around. Like it, it does finally make sense why it's constructed the way it's constructed. And it is kind of almost an aha moment where you're like, uh, that's why they did that. I get it now, but um, it's a pretty unpleasant film and not for the sake of horror and not in the way you think it's going to be. Cause when you look at the one line synopsis on IMDb, it says a woman subject to mental, physical, and sexual abuse on a remote island, seeks a way out. And the image that they have on IMDb is a woman with a knife up against her tongue. So I was really worried this was going to be a torture film, which is not necessarily my cup of tea. And it didn't go that direction. It's, you know, but it is a pretty slow burn drama. That's a very, very heavy content for the majority of the running time without a lot of horror until the end. So take that for what it's worth. Uh, 6.5 out of 10, and I would call it a rental. All right, very good. All right, excellent. So that wraps up our At Your Mercy segment of the show, and uh, I do believe we will be having one coming up again here in the very near future. Yeah, we'll do part two, and or I guess again, 4B, I guess. (laughs) 4B, yeah. At Your Mercy, part 4B. Yes, we will get to that in short order, but... Before we get to that, why don't we kick it back over to Dr. Shock for a little Collector's Crypt action. All right, The Collector's Crypt is also a movie recommended by the listeners. And it just so happens that uh, this particular movie uh, had a Blu-ray release from Synapse that came out in uh, the end of February of 2019. It was recommended by Paul Lee on Twitter. And it's a movie that Quentin Tarantino has raved about. He's called it a horror movie unlike any other and has actually compared it to The Shining. It is director Tony Williams' 1982 exploitation horror mystery Next of Kin. And uh, one of the reasons I chose it is because it is an exploitation style movie. It, it was one that was brought up in the Not Quite Hollywood uh, documentary from years back. And it's a movie I've always wanted to see. It stars Jackie Karen and John Jarrett, a.k.a. Mick Taylor from the Wolf Creek films. I thought it was really interesting because John Jarrett, uh, in an interview uh, he conducted for Not Quite Hollywood, actually called, I'm not sure if this made the final cut of the movie or not, but he called Next of Kin his first ever horror movie, which I thought was uh, really interesting because he did have a small role in 1975's Picnic and Hanging Rock. So it's uh, pretty obvious that Mr. Jarrett uh, agrees with a few of our listeners when we back when we did our uh, exploitation or our, uh, horror down under episode uh, who don't consider Picnic at Hanging Rock a horror movie. <laughs> anyway, to set this up, the synopsis, uh, after the death of her mother, Linda, played by Jackie Curran, begrudgingly returns home to take over the family business, the management of Montclair, a retirement home that's been in her family for some time. She reconnects with her old boyfriend, Barney, that's John Jarrett, 
and befriends Lance, an elderly resident played by Charles McCallum. But it isn't long before Linda's initial apprehension turns to all-out paranoia. When one of the home's occupants is found dead in the bathtub, Linda starts digging into the house's rather shady past, at which point she finds herself being tormented by an unknown person or persons. Eventually, Linda begins to believe that the local doctor, played by Alex Scott, and the home's longtime assistant manager, Connie, uh, Gerda Nicholson, are conspiring against her. But are they the culprits, or is the turmoil being caused by someone else entirely, someone who shares a bond with Linda that she herself doesn't even know about? Right off the bat, Next of Kin is beautifully shot. Uh, Director uh, Williams uh, styled this movie, uh, and he says it several times, uh, like a European film. Uh, There's even a key sequence uh, towards the end that um, was influenced by uh, a similar moment in Last Tango in Paris. Uh, In addition, the movie cinematographer Gary Hansen um, borrowed uh, techniques from Alfred Hitchcock. There's a scene in particular, a dream sequence, that uses an effect shot that really reminds you of a similar moment in Vertigo, and it's really cool. There are overhead tracking shots, there's steady cam, there are dolly shots, and they pop up when you least expect them, and they add a lot. They really do add to the overall experience. It's a shame because Gary Hansen actually died in a helicopter crash that's in a year after making Next to Kin. And um, it's it's truly tragic because he was clearly a very talented uh, cinematographer. Uh, Tony Williams mentions at one point that uh, one of the reasons he made Next of Kin was because he had no interest in copying the American slasher film, which was huge at the time. And even when it's sort of against the grain with that, Because not only did he give us a female lead, but he gave us one who proves to be the toughest character in the movie. And there's one scene in particular where the lights go out in the rest home as as she's sort of doing her research. Uh, And she starts looking around. She's looking around the rooms uh, with a flashlight. She encounters several things that scare the hell out of us, but she kind of takes them in stride, which I thought was an interesting choice. Uh, she does eventually lose it, um, you know, sort of pushed to the brink of insanity by what's going on. But even then, she, she proves that she's not someone to be trifled with. I really liked that character a lot. It's undoubtedly a slow burn. It's going to move kind of slowly for for some horror fans. There are some creepy scenes and a few scares, you know, in the in, in this first half of the movie. But it is primarily a mystery. But like I said, there's enough to sort of keep you interested. I'd really love to go into more about what goes on, but I'm not going to because it goes all out at the end and it does rely on its surprises. I really did enjoy the opening, as I said, but I loved the ending of this movie. I have a soft spot for movies that surprised the hell out of me. And this film did that several times in that final act. I'm going to give it a nine out of 10. And I say buy the new Synapse Blu-ray. To give you an idea what's on that Blu-ray, uh, there are two commentary tracks, one with director Tony Williams and his producer, the other moderated by Mick Hartley, director of Not Quite Hollywood, and featuring stars Jackie Karen, John Jarrett, and co-star Robert Riddy. Uh, I didn't have the time to listen to either commentary in its entirety, but what I did hear, I enjoyed. It looks like everyone had something of value you know, to, to contribute. The uh, disc includes extended interviews with director Tony Williams and star John Jarrett, initially shot for Not Quite Hollywood. Uh, John Jarrett's is kind of brief, but Tony Williams talks at length about the movie. Why it, and he, you'll learn certain things, like why it was the last feature film he ever made. He only directed one before it, so he only ever made two dramatic features. He does make documentaries. Um, 
how the studio was pushing him to finish. He basically shot the first draft of the script because he didn't have a choice. And they were hounding him constantly to get the production wrapped before the end of the fiscal year so that the investors could write it off. Um, but most <laughs> importantly, the film's disastrous final scene, which was something they had planned for months and could only shoot once. It went so badly that it left one crew member in tears and the special effects guy in a zombie-like state. Um, oh. but, but what they did get ended up being applauded by audiences and critics and is today considered a terrific ending. And it is really good. It's not what they wanted. And they really thought that they blew it. But it's actually awesome. And they do talk about this in Not Quite Hollywood. Um, because I know that because my son happened to be walking by when I was watching this last scene. And he remembered them covering it in that documentary. I didn't even remember. But he remembered <laughs> them covering it in that documentary. Um, there's a featurette return to Montclair, a 2018 visit to the shooting locations, which is a musical montage of scenes from the movie interspersed with how those locales look today. It's really pretty cool. Uh, there's uh, deleted scenes, which because the original elements were destroyed are rebuilt with stills and text to explain what happened. It's interesting, but I'm glad they cut these scenes out, to be honest. I don't think they would have added anything to the movie. There are trailers and the alternate German opening. Which is really a waste, because as far as I could see, the alternate German opening was just the opening credits without the pre-title sequence. <laughs> um, there is an image gallery with like 98 images. I did check this one out. It has everything from VHS covers and posters to behind-the-scenes pics, storyboards, shot schedules, and production sheets. Joel converted you to the uh, photo gallery, huh? Photo. Well, I felt like an ass not checking out the last one. <laughs> so I wanted to correct that with this one. I said, okay, I'm going to sit through the, the, the photo gallery. Um, and the last thing, there are two Tony Williams shorts. Uh, he, he has continued to make documentaries, uh, and he had also done it prior to Next with Ken. And I think these are two of his early documentary shorts. I didn't watch them, but they're there if you, uh, if you wanted to check it out. This was a really great experience watching this film, and I do recommend picking up the Synapse Blu-ray. I think it's awesome. That's interesting. So when you mentioned that this was one of the films you were going to be discussing, I looked, I just Googled Next of Kin, and the poster came up, and I thought, oh, I have such strong memories of this VHS case. I remember yep. this. Right. As a kid, is this a horror film though i don't remember this being a horror film and you said well it's listed on imdb as horror mystery and i thought oh that's interesting okay wow i'm really interested in seeing this as you started talking about it today i was like wait a minute that's not the film i was thinking of i was thinking of next of kid 1989 with patrick, patrick swayze, swayze oh, and liam neeson yes, <laughs> yes. No, that, that is not a horror film no oh dang it <laughs> Because <laughs> I would have really loved to see the Patrick Swayze horror film that looks like that. Yeah, no, no, that that's not a that's not a horror film. But it's Darn funny it. you bring up the video box for this because I remember, of course, the Patrick Swayze one. But I I remember this one. This one was about as ubiquitous as anyone like the Kendrid or any of the other ones. That image of yeah. the arm, which I, I presume it's blood coursing down the end of it, as it's reaching down what appears out of the sky, out of the title uh, towards that. What, it, what looks like the silhouette of some estate manor type place with the red right, clouds in the sky. Yeah. Yep. I remember that so well. I, I used to love that box. That was a cool box. 
Well, now yeah. I am determined to see a Patrick Swayze horror film, so I was scanning <laughs> through his filmography. Letters from a Killer, 1998, might be my best shot. So yeah. I guess some people might consider Donnie Darko, but I, I'm looking for Swayze as the killer here. So. I thought he played a ghost at one point. He, he did. Well, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> That's there a is thing. a terrifying scene of hell in that film. I'll give it that. <laughs> right, there really is. Well, I will say, Dave, thank you for doing this one, because I think that initially when i was looking through the whole list this title jumped out at me because again like kindred it was one that i remembered the box extremely well but never saw the movie so i am absolutely going to pick this one up i am super excited to watch this yeah i i do recommend it like i said it's a wild ride it does change gears uh and it's a wild ride at the end but it really is just so cool and it's so stylistic i mean you could tell the 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 european influences you could tell hitchcock's influences they try so many different things with the camera in this movie hmm. um it's just it's really really impressive because tony cool. um tony williams has said that uh you know he didn't want to make horror movies it's very interesting because one of the things he talks about in his commentary was he was there with toby hooper early on and toby hooper's uh, was warned by a friend of his, if you make a horror movie, you will be you will be in that genre the rest of your life. You won't be able to break out of it. And Tony Toby Hooper said, well, let me just make Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm sure I'll be able to do what I want after that. <laughs> and he never did. Tony Williams did not want to be a horror director. So after doing Next of Kin, he just dropped out. He hmm. basically was like, I'm just going to do documentaries and, and uh, work behind the scenes and such. So it is the last feature dramatic movie that he directed and it's a shame because it is so well done hmm. interesting well thanks to paul lee at a final boy on twitter for that recommendation yeah apps thank you very much all right so that wraps up the collector's crypt and i do believe this first part of our at your mercy coverage Let's go ahead then and go into some listener feedback uh, about the Pet Cemetery episode. And then we will follow that up with our giveaway. We actually have three digital downloads that we are going to be giving away to listeners who contributed their favorite Stephen King episodes over at HorrorMoviePodcast.com. So last episode, Joel mentioned that he had a bunch of digital copies that he never used and questioned whether anyone did. And Dave said, I never have mine either. I just always throw them in the garbage. And we thought, well, maybe we should utilize these to at least give to our audience. It turns out a lot of people were interested in those. So we threw up a little post in the comment section at hornmoviepodcast.com for the pet cemetery episode, as well as a one tweet on Twitter and just said, Hey, if you are interested in winning a free digital download of pet cemetery, 1989, Go to the comments section and leave your pick for your favorite Stephen King adaptation. And we got quite a few responses and we're going to give away three copies of Pet Cemetery to three lucky people who submitted their response. So we're just going to go through the comments right now and read uh, some of those submissions and we can just see, uh, I guess, what we think of them. Sure. You want to go first, Joel, and start with uh, Pastor Matt was the first one to respond to your post there. So Pastor Matt said, I don't need to enter the giveaway because I own it. But one of my favorite King adaptations is The Mist. Everyone should buy the Blu-ray and watch it in black and white. I won't mention who threw shade on this great movie with such a gutsy ending, but 
<laughs> well, Pastor Matt, this is Go Man Joel here, and I too have no idea who would throw shade on that movie <laughs> with the gutsy ending that completely defies everything that the protagonist has done up to that last two minutes. But hey, that's okay. Spend the whole movie trying to save somebody and then just... No, uh, probably that's a spoiler. Let me mark that. Uh, <laughs> you just beat me. Just beat the whole thing. <laughs> I thought Jason and Jacksonville's response was pretty funny. He said, that was epic. Wrong, but epic. <laughs> and uh, his comment to you, I thought, you know what? I need to go back and listen to Joel's rant about this. It was way more intense than I remember. It was, you were going off. Jay had to bleep you like five different times. <laughs> It was pretty funny. As it turns out, I don't get a mad about really anything important in life. <laughs> but when something de- defies what I think a character would actually do, I get a little um, my dander up. I don't know what, what the proper expression would be, but yeah. Yeah. That was definitely the most mad I've ever heard you. So yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> <sighs> okay. So we have a submission here from Sean Taylor. He says, favorite King adaptation. Langoliers always holds a special place in my heart since me and my mom watched it together. Same with the green mile. We read all the books together as they were released every week or so. Can't remember exactly. We also loved the movie with all that said, my all time favorite and the one I've probably seen the most is silver bullet. Yeah. And actually, and you know, it's funny. I think there's a lot of people that knock silver bullet uh, and I get it, but I also Love that movie as well, and there's a lot of things to love about it. Uh, and I think I made this uh, I made this point in the comments. Let's start off with the fact that it has Terry O'Quinn in it. Okay, yep. that was my first and last point I made for why it's an awesome movie. But it has a lot of great things going for it. Is it a perfect movie? No, most King adaptations aren't perfect uh, by any stretch. Then, of course, probably no movie that's perfect, uh, even The Shining. But I would say that out of all of them, <laughs> I, out of all of them, I will relent to the fact that Shining is definitely the most uh, artistic and most masterfully made for sure. But I think the vast majority of them, you know, they run this very large spectrum. I think for most people, the Langoliers is going to be on the opposite end from the Shining on the spectrum. <laughs> right. But I love that you pointed out it has that. I, I am coming, it's it, it's just, it's probably for the same reason why I don't do things like digital downloads. I'm going to use the argument I'm just getting old apparently and <laughs> I don't want to bother doing those things. Uh, that's, my, yep. that's my go-to excuse at the moment. Uh, but I, I think that I am also starting to become more and more sentimental the older I get, which is why I was telling a friend of mine today, I am banishing the phrase guilty pleasure from the vernacular, my vernacular anyway, and I'm, I'm supplanting it with sentimental favorite. These movies yep. are my sentimental favorites. The Legoliers is your sentimental favorite. For Christ's sake, I feel the same way about Tommyknockers. So there you go. <laughs> you did mention that on the show last week, actually. Oh, I so. did say that? Okay, so I'm now I can't even remember what I said last week. So there you go. I'm proving my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'll talk more about Silver Bullet as we go along. But yeah, that was a good points. Good points made. I would like to point out, I love that the Mad Cetologist put, I just started the episode and I was about to rain hellfire. <laughs> down on Gilman Joel because I saw he gave Pet Cemetery 2019 a 9.5. So you might want to fix that typo in the first segment from 2019 to 1989. To which Josh said, I'll fix it. <laughs> yeah, well, we get we get these these guys. Sal Rome is another one. They're sticklers for the show notes. Some people have never seen the show notes, but every week when I mess something up, <laughs> there's, there's always somebody, somebody who lets me know yes. I messed up something on the show notes. Yeah. All right, so Rob Humphrey says, I still really enjoy the 1989 version. 
referring to Pet Cemetery, obviously, possibly nostalgia on my part. I didn't care much for the 2019 adaptation, and I'm not sure why it just felt like something was missing from it. My favorite King adaptation is The Mist. Frank Tweet says, Misery is my favorite King adaptation. Kathy Bates' performance is insane, and the film predicted a lot of modern-day fan backlash. I can't argue with that, Frank. Uh, you know, Misery is one of my all-time favorite movies ever mm-hmm. of any genre, mm-hmm. so... Uh, yeah, it's it's a strong choice. And I love his I love what he said there, because until he said that, I love that idea of watching it through the lens of fan backlash and how some people can just get cockadoody crazy over, you know, <laughs> I, look, I, I obviously I, who am I to talk? Right. Like, yeah, you know, please see exhibit a the mist. But <laughs> the, the fact is, is that I think that when you consider her being the number one fan and you think about some of the ways that certain folks have reacted online, it's it's could be kind of scary, especially for those who make them. So uh, I love that. I love that he pointed that out. And also Misery is one of my favorite movies of all time as well. It's in my it's easily my top three King adaptations too. just love it so much. So good. Graham. Uh, he says, I'm going with The Shining as the best adaptation, even if uh, SK didn't like it. Apart from the Halloran changeup at the end, it seemed to be spot on in tone and storyline. I don't know about storyline as much. As I, don't, I don't think it's the uh, best adaptation if you're looking for a faithful adaptation. Exactly. I think it's the best adaptation if you're looking for a great film inspired by the book yes they're two very very different experiences and i just i've always found that to be a pretty unfair comparison because movies by their nature are visual and they're action-based and yes you can have someone narrate the whole thing so that you're somewhat in a character's head but it's still not the same and i just think it's not necessarily a fair comparison to say that experience you had reading a 400 or 500 page or in king's case a thousand page home uh, where you were able to you know really just get into all this granular detail and every can be thing can be slowed down and zoomed in on you just can't do that with a movie and i just i've always found that to be not the fairest comparison okay eric malcolm says favorite king adaptation is a tough one favorite horror pet cemetery favorite non-horror i think i'd say stand by me over shawshank redemption though both from the same novella most fun probably maximum overdrive it's silly but always a fun watch and love that it's the only one actually directed by King. Those were interesting choices, Eric. Yes, they were. And I actually agree. I think if I have to pick, like somebody said, you have to pick your favorite overall King adaptation. I think I pick Stand By Me. I just interesting. something. I think I saw that movie at the right time. And then watching it again as an adult has this deeper and even more profound sort of effect on me mm-hmm. and I, I just I just I think it's a fantastic film and I actually also will go to bat for maximum overdrive I wow. I, be- I believe that King has very publicly acknowledged some of the uh, pharmaceutical assistance uh, he may have used while <laughs> directing that movie um, <laughs> and I think in a way it shows and I think it's uh, it's a uh, to the betterment of the movie quite honestly because and, and I believe my line here, I don't know if this will get me banned off the boards or not, Josh, but I put any movie that has a little leaguer getting steamrolled in the opening scenes can't be all bad. Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> blocked hey, hate monger. David Fear says, I know the man himself hates it, but The Shining is the best SK adaptation is constantly building dread until the end when everything hits the fan. Not to mention Jack Nicholson's and Shelley Duvall's performances are perfect. I agree. I think it's uh, it's a perfect adaptation. 
And, and you know, and it's hard. I understand why Stephen King doesn't like it there. He's, he's right in many ways, but it's just, it's one of the best films ever made. So it's hard (laughs) of any genre and definitely one of the best horror films ever made. So it's, it's hard to argue with the shining. Yeah, It's a fantastic film. And I think that I know I recently saw an interview with King and he talked a little bit about one of his issues with the shining. And I can't say that he's wrong about this at all. And it's the one, the only thing that I would say about this comic, because I agree a thousand percent about Duvall. I think her performance is amazing, but I feel like Nicholson is pretty much just being Nicholson amped up to, you know, (laughs) a little bit higher, but he's very, you know, it's Jack Nicholson. And I think King's issue was he's playing Jack Torrance already unhinged from, from pretty much from the opening scenes. Now, I don't know that he comes across as unhinged. I think he comes across as Jack Nicholson. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so take that for what it's worth. But I think as far as a true performance goes, and I know a lot of it's just because of perhaps some of the treatment she was enduring through the production of that movie. But Shelley Duvall is, in my opinion, the anchor, the emotional anchor that makes that movie just that much more terrifying. Just her reaction, especially as you get to the climax of the film, is just it's unrelenting. So I think it's the pair of them. I'll disagree with you on Nicholson. I think his performance is amazing. I I, I think it's the contrast of those two performances mm-hmm. that make it so special because they are very different. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I guess I, I sort of agree and disagree with King in that I see why his Jack Torrance in his mind. And, you know, he wrote the character was a different type of uh, persona, yeah. I think. And and I think I don't necessarily agree with him, though, that Nicholson seems, you know, like well, he's already lost it by the beginning. I don't I don't get that vibe necessarily from him. He seems pretty subdued at the beginning. Uh, but but yeah, as it goes on, I mean, he, you know, he's it's that it's like that over he the top evil gleam in yes, his eyes though, yes. that I think like Lewis and Pet Cemetery doesn't have. And I think that is more who King envisioned, like a warm family man who is driven to madness. Yes. You know? Yeah, that makes sense. All right. And then uh, and then we had, uh, I believe, a comment from a Wolfman Josh who acknowledges that Pet <laughs> Cemetery is quickly becoming one of his favorite. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I was going to talk about this uh, another time, but, you know, I guess we're talking about Pet Cemetery now. I've become obsessed with this world. I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> I haven't been this obsessed with something since I first got into Survivor. And I know that's probably not like a... <laughs> a great selling point to the audience but man i this is like completely consumed me after marinating in this world for a couple of weeks going back and editing a podcast and so spending so much extra time thinking about it all of the conversation points that we made during the episode listening to matt greenberg's interview again after conducting it like it's it's just uh i'm kind of obsessed with it i went out and i bought the original film on Blu-ray, which I wasn't sure I was going to do after our review, I went out and got the novel, and I'm super excited about it. It's just, uh, it's the most beautifully tragic story I can imagine. Is it weird? How I like? Do do you feel the same way? Do you feel like you want to live in that world for some weird reason? Like, I just I can't quite put my finger on it, but that's one of the things I just I I always think about. There's something about it, and and I don't know what it is if it's the 
the way King presents Maine or just, and I know we talked about this last time, but just there's so I just want to be in that world and I can't quite put my yeah. finger on it, but yeah, well, def- I feel that way about all of King's work, but there's something about this story in particular. I, you know, I don't know if I'm a glutton for punishment, what exactly it is, but I, there, when something really speaks to my deepest fears mm-hmm. and emotional pain, I love it mm-hmm. even more. And this is something that does it. It latches into what I perceive as one of, you know, my greatest weaknesses as a human being. And it's just such a relatable concept. We would all do what Lewis does. We would all want to bring our sweet, innocent child back. We would all want to bring our spouse back. If we thought there was a chance that we could, you would want to take that chance, even knowing the devastating risks involved. And so it just speaks to me on such a deep level and it's just so tragic and sad and something about that. I just find really beautiful in in its execution, you know? Yeah. And I don't know if this is going to come across as externally messed up or really make it seem like I might not be the greatest dad in the world, but I actually had my kids. I, I don't remember if it was my youngest or my middle who point blank said to me, dad, if I died, you wouldn't bury me in the pet cemetery, would you? So, A, I've made my children aware of this, that this concept even exists. <laughs> but, uh, the, I, and then I had to lie to him and say, oh, well, no, son, of course I wouldn't do such a thing. <laughs> I would, I would, yeah, right. I wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. Cause I realized that the second he realizes that I'm like, oh, no, cause I think that in my grief and then in, in those moments of just emotional insanity that you would be feeling, there's no way you wouldn't mm-hmm. at the very least contemplate it. Oh, yeah. All right. The next one is actually from Dino. Um, and uh, Joe, you referenced this. Uh, yes. He says, best King adaptation. I don't buy into the notion that a good, adapta- a, a good adaptation needs to be 100% faithful to the source material. Books and film are two different mediums. And what makes a good book does not necessarily make a good film and vice versa. So to me, a good adaptation is a film that is true to the tone and general story of the book but presents it in a way that is successful for film. I guess a more accurate way of saying it, in my mind, would be that a film film adaptation should be an interpretation of the source material, not a direct translation. With that in mind, the correct answer has to be Kubrick's The Shining, right? For good measure, below are my top five favorite King adaptations. The Shining, 1976's Carrie, The Mist, 2017's It, and Storm of the Century. If you don't count Storm, since it was originally written as a screenplay, then Salem's Lot would be next up on my list. And I got to say, I, I do agree with Dino 100% here. I, I, you know, a lot of people who who read the book say, oh, the movie was nothing like the book. A lot of times, if you do that, you're talking miniseries, you know, like they did with the, with the original It. Now you got a two-volume It coming out. It's a miniseries. You, you've got... Uh, to stay faithful to a novel sometimes it's going to be a long production and it's going to be a long finished product. So I think staying uh, true to the source and the tone is, is what uh, is what you look for. And that's what I look for. That's what Hitchcock, that was his philosophy, right? I, I believe right. I had always, I don't know how apocryphal the story is, but that he would, you find a book or a book would be recommended to him. He would read it once and then toss it. Like he was done. He didn't go back and outline it and try to figure out how to, it was, he just wanted to capture 
I guess, his initial reaction or feeling to that book, but it was not necessarily his goal to recreate that book experience on cellular because I honestly don't know that you can. I feel like you right. end up with a lot of maybe clunky and it just it doesn't always work if you try to force it. Because even to your point about it, chapter one and chapter two, they're still leaving out a ton of stuff. True. Speaking about it and Salem's Lot, as we're on the topic here for a minute, it was just announced today as we're recording this that James Wan is developing an adaptation of Salem's Lot. He will produce and potentially direct and the screenplay is being written by one of the screenwriters of It 2017. So that's a lot to look forward to. You know what? I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, I, I love the original Salem's Lot. Obviously scared the hell out of me. But uh, James Wan attached to it has me interested. I'd like to see. Uh, I'll be interested what he comes up with. I, I am too, I think. And one of the notes that I saw online about this today is just that the story... Well, number one, Stephen King's so hot right now, and so we're going to be seeing a lot more of this kind of stuff, right. I think, which is exciting. But just just as with the 1990 adaptation of It, you know, this is a story that was made for television and hasn't had the treatment of a big Hollywood budget, which is this is going to get now with one attack. Coming off Aquaman, one of the a-billion-dollar yes. film. So right. uh, this is pretty exciting you know, and, and I think it's a pretty good hands. I, I, I trust the screenwriter of it and I generally trust one, although I don't love his visual style. I, I do think he knows horror well, so could be cool. All right. So the gray man says solid episode and he b- says that his favorite adaptation is Christine. I have a love for classic cars and this book film has always spoke to me and I will also second that notion. I love Christine as well. I think that's a great, I think that's one of those under discussed and underappreciated Carpenter films as well. I know our listener Juan is a big Christine fan and I know Greg Amortis is a big Christine fan as well. So, and I am too. I love Christine every, anytime it was on cable. Yeah. yeah. It, it's just a fun movie. And I feel like too, it's a great gateway horror film in a lot of ways. It's sort of like a lost boys or some of the other ones where if you know, you've got somebody maybe in their younger teen years, it's not, too much it doesn't go too far in a lot of ways right. so but it's it's just scary enough and there's this spirit to it and the music is great of course carpenter so yeah i, I think that's a great choice he also mentioned uh, the shining misery shawshank stand by me carry the mist it both adaptation and obviously pet cemetery Okay, well, Barely Ashley says, of course, my favorite King adaptation is Pet Cemetery, 1989. It still scares me. It's hard to watch alone. It is a must-own. The book is scarier. I've had to put it down a few times and watch like Rick and Morty or something to get my mind off of it. I also have a fondness for Children of the Corn. <laughs> and, and you know what? No judgments. No, no judgments at all, number one, because uh, obviously Pet Cemetery is in my friggin' top 10. Uh, secondly... I also love Children of the Corn. Is it a perfect movie? <laughs> no, I do not care. Uh, and I would like to give a shout out to Pastor Matt and his son. I was actually listening to their podcast in the car with my kids when they covered the Children of the Corn movies. They talked about Children of the Corn too. I believe was the last of, of the series that was released theatrically. I actually saw that at a dollar movie when it came out in 92. Uh, and I love the original. And of course, my kids are listening to this with me. I don't know if I should be troubled that tonight after dinner, my nine-year-old pretended like he was cranking up a chainsaw and said, this is the real children of the corn. 
<laughs> I don't know if that's to be something I should be concerned about, but I'm just going to pretend like it didn't happen and everything will be fine in the end. So, Ashley, thank you. I have to give a call back to Matt Greenberg from an interview from this last episode when he said, porn isn't scary. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Have you seen Sleepwalkers? You can stab somebody with it. Next up, I have uh, Chris Green. He says, my favorite Stephen King adaptation is the made-for-television miniseries Salem's Lot. This thing gave me nightmares well into my adulthood, and I'm still hoping for a proper remake. Uh, we don't speak about the Rob Lowe travesty, put in parentheses. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Love the show. Um, and Josh just gave us the news about a, a, an upcoming uh, remake of Salem's Lot, which is uh, which is great. Uh, but I'm I'm absolutely with him. I saw this at a very young age and it uh it really stays with you there are moments in that movie uh that stay with you for a very long time yeah and i will have to say that i didn't see actually salem's lot until i believe we covered it dave during a spooky flicks fest i i think that was the first time i had actually finally seen the original and i really i appreciated mm -hmm. it quite a bit but i think i saw the remake well i wouldn't call it a remake but the uh other version <laughs> the rob right. Lowe version and and i actually had seen that first and i don't and i don't remember a lot about it i don't remember disliking it though i don't remember it being poorly made i don't know if either of you ever saw it but i own them both okay uh i i don't think either are perfect i far prefer the toby hooper version um but it's also got a lot of dull moments in that Mm -hmm. The whole oh yeah the first the first part of it being a mini series is the setting up of the characters which they do take a long time to do but once you get to that long second half time. yeah <laughs> and that and the first version of the movie i saw had been edited for theatrical release and it was two hours long it cut most of that out at the beginning and that's what they were playing on cable at the time so they kept everything at the end and lost an hour from the beginning there i mean that that's probably like half the movie probably the first day like i probably played over two nights the first night everyone's like wait a second this is a horror movie <laughs> <laughs> It'll be hard to beat a couple of the scenes in the Hooper film because they are really scary, and I love the yeah. look of the characters and and the execution. But I I do think it's something that can be topped. All right, so Justin Wallace says I've been a huge fan of the show for a while now, but now you're asking me to choose a favorite Stephen King adaptation. I would have to say The Shining, even though it's not faithful to the novel. I realize I'm not the first to think it's a masterpiece. I also really like Secret Window, but I know that's kind of an unpopular opinion. Again, Justin, I say nay. I remember enjoying Secret Window quite a bit. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember liking it. I think that a movie's underrated. Again, the corn inclusion in that film, maybe it's... <laughs> See, corn, corn can be scary. <laughs> hasn't aged well that <laughs> was maybe a weird choice by the directors but yeah we covered that on our stephen king coverage justin if you haven't heard that i recommend going back to hmp episode 125 to hear our feature review of children of the corn or not bleh, sorry <laughs> secret window go back and check out that review it was a lot of fun cool okay trevor r says the shining is my favorite king adaptation by far i also love carrie the mist salem's lot the Dead Zone, and Gerald's Game. Nice, so a bunch of classics there. and a brand new film. Mm -hmm. Yep. That will become a classic. Absolutely. Yeah, Gerald's Game is so good. I, I yes. know that not everyone loves it, but I, man, I... I loved it a, a lot. I did too. I thought it was so awesome. So good. Yep. 
100% agree with that. Shane the Maniac Cop says, man, I love the Stephen King rebirth. As a fanboy of King, which started with a trip to the Dark Tower and a trip to Derry to battle Pennywise, this is the golden age of King cinema. I'm still listening, but I got to say the best King adaptation is Stand By Me. The best King horror adaptation is the newest It, pure cinema. I love Misery and the Shining, but it holds a special place for me. Not a bad choice, Shane. Not at all. And there's there's my beloved Stand By Me. No, it's interesting because when the new It came out, I wondered, you know, sometimes with a film like that, it takes some distance to kind of mm-hmm. assess how good it really is, you know, because those films are often overrated or underrated. There's backlash. All the stuff happens in the moment. And then some time passes and we can really evaluate how we actually feel about it. And although there are still people who are diehard for the It 1990, and I don't dismiss that special, I loved it. But man, I really do think this new It is something special. I think it is a really well done adaptation of King. Absolutely, yeah. Can I say something controversial? Yeah. I've seen It once uh, when it came out of the theater. I liked it, but I remember, to your point about needing distance, Yeah. that I, I couldn't quite figure out how I felt. I knew I didn't hate it. I knew I wasn't angry. I wasn't, fr- but there was something, and it wasn't, off for me in the same way, say the new Pet Cemetery was, or it was nothing like that. It wasn't anything structural or character and none of that. It was just, there was something I couldn't quite put my finger on. So what I intentionally have done, and this has been very hard to do by the way, because there's been multiple times I've wanted to revisit it. I'm waiting now that we're about to close in on chapter two, and I'm going to revisit it in a couple weeks before chapter two comes out. That was my, I am intentionally waiting because I want to go in it's been enough time now that I haven't forgotten it. I mean, I still remember quite well a few of the key scenes that, but I, I, I don't, I feel very conflicted about that movie. Cause I think it's a fantastic movie. I, I don't argue that it's not, but it's just something about it didn't hit me right. And I, the only thing I can come to about that, that he makes any sense in my mind that seems so ridiculously superficial is that it was set. And you would think this would be totally contradicting everything I seem to stand for, but it's set in the late eighties, which I should on paper love, but I, there's something about it not being in the fifties. And I, I always think of King stuff through that lens so much that I, I found that a little off putting and I don't know why. And again, I'm hoping when I revisit it now that I know going in that the, and I knew going in, that's what it was going to be anyway. But I think just seeing it, it, I just felt like, oh yeah, are they trying to do a Stranger Things here? What was happening? And so, because that element, I always so associate with King and 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 his books that you know take place in in Derry and all these places, and and I obviously Stand by Me. It would almost be like if you did Stand by Me as a as a redo, and you said it in 1989. Like I just I I don't know that I'd like that. I feel like that is the time was a key element there. I think that's a, that was a fair criticism at the time it came out because Stranger Things and then mm-hmm. or the height of kind of like. 80s pandering but i think as as we've gained distance from it it's really smart it's brilliant actually because what it does is it puts today's audience in the same space that king was Mm -hmm. nostalgically looking back at his youth and it it perfectly translates that 27 year span to now from the 1990 film i just think it's working on so many levels there i think it was a brilliant move and it makes the film more meaningful to a modern audience, you know, to a contemporary audience, because it's relating directly in the way that King was hoping to relate directly to his audience when he wrote his book. 
And that makes right. perfect sense to me. And now that, and I'm glad you said it that way, because that's that is the mindset I'm going to go into it when I revisit it. And I'm hoping I could feel completely different. That it, it, it's almost as if I, I felt like I had a head cold when I first saw it and, yeah. and now and I needed to all clear out. I needed the sinuses, everything to clear out. Oh, OK, I can. OK, yeah, I, I see it clearly now. That's what I, I want to feel when I see that movie. There are a couple of minor CGI moments that bother me. Um, when I first saw it, I thought there were more that bothered me as I looked more into the film, finding out that the actor, Bill Skarsgård, actually uh, performed a lot of those things that seemed like CGI through his own contortion of his face and his eyes and his body. Um, obviously, there is some CGI in the film, and it's, you know, the director, for whatever reason, felt it was necessary to complete his vision. Some of the effects, I think, are really cool. Others don't quite land for me, but I think to dismiss the other parts of the film, for me, it's it's so successful on so many levels for me. I just, I, I'm really impressed with that. And I also gave it some distance. For me, the reason I didn't buy it on Blu-ray was because there had been rumors that there was the Andy Muschietti director's cut coming out, that he wasn't able to do everything he wanted to do with theatrical version. And he promised soon after the film uh, came out theatrically, before the Blu-ray came out, that there would be a director's cut coming out and available, and it just never came out. So I waited and waited and waited and waited, and it just never came out. And I actually have waited to buy it for that, because I remember you saying that, and I was waiting, and then it occurred to me that we're so close to chapter two, you know they're going to do a box set, so I'm just going to wait until the whole thing's together, and then I'll get it. It's definitely worth revisiting, though. It's a fantastic film. I'm actually looking forward to it because, again, I, I'm hoping I have a different reaction. I want my reaction to be more complete and clear. I mean, you know, much like what I said about the Pet Cemetery film, I think it just nails so many things that the original couldn't, you know, and I know that that's not a great comparison for you since you hated the remake. Pet Cemetery. I don't but think I, I hated it, but well, you know. you know what I mean. You're more critical of that adaptation. Yes, I was. Yes, I was more critical. That's fair. As many things as I loved about the 1990 version, which I do, and for me, it's so hard with Tim Curry in the conversation to even think of anything else. But I, there are just elements that they were able to translate better cinematically, you know, and. Yeah, and then they also paid a ton of tribute to that version too. They loved that film too. It was clear mm-hmm. from watching it. So, all right. So next up, we've got Nathan Toll, author of Pumpkin Cinema. He left us a comment, and I will jump down to where he discussed his list. He said he has a top ten list of Stephen King adaptations. He says I don't think Creepshow counts, so it won't be included. I'm just going to add this, Nathan. I think it does count because those are all adaptations of Stephen King short stories. <laughs> so, I mean, technically, he's got number one, The Shining, two, Shawshank, three, 1408, four, Misery, five, The Dead Zone, six, Pet Cemetery, both, virgin, both versions, uh, seven, The Mist, eight, Carrie, nine, Stand By Me, and ten, Thinner. Very nice list. Yeah. I kind of love that he has Thinner. Hey, we like what we like. <laughs> Indeed. All right. All right. Next, we have uh, Jason Strong. It may not be a popular opinion. But my favorite Stephen King adaptation is Silver Bullet. I absolutely love werewolf films, despite the fact that there are probably only about five that are worth watching. And this one is near the top of my list. Yeah. This film oozes patented King charm as terror envelops an idyllic New England community. If you can get past some cheesy acting, weird makeup, and little Gary Busey, it is well worth your time. 
and I actually enjoyed Silver Bullet too. I saw yeah. it for the first time not too long ago. I did. Uh, I did like it. Raul Rivera says, "Let's do this." Favorite Stephen King adaptations? I can't imagine anyone will agree with this list. Number one, Christine. You're already wrong, Raul. People <laughs> love Christine. <laughs> Misery. People love Misery. Dreamcatcher. Well, <laughs> controversial choice. Yes. Yeah, that's controversial. The Mist. I don't think you'll get any arguments there. It 2017 fan favorite storm of the yeah. century. I would have said that's a very controversial choice, but we've already seen it on Dino's list. So and it's you know what? And I love that movie. I don't know how you yeah, could not yeah, love yeah. that movie. I love that. movie. I do think it's a bold choice though. And I will say the same for the next couple needful things. Cujo and pet cemetery. I think those are all pretty bold choices in a world where movies like the shining and misery exist. I think they're good choices still, but I think they are bold choices. Mm hmm. But his number 10 was the one that really blew me away. The Shining miniseries for that to be number 10 on this list where the Shining by Stanley Kubrick appears nowhere. I love that list. Raul. I think it's very bold, super controversial. And I love fandom. I love that this kind of yes. thing can exist and, uh, and that people can be <laughs> so passionate about, you know, the films that they love. I think it's great. And I will say that, other than Danny Torrance, the Danny Torrance and the miniseries aside, no, no offense, uh, but that aside, I love, love, love that miniseries. I, I always I did too. Yeah, I, I loved it. Uh, you know, I'm a Mick Garris fan. I'm a Rebecca De Mornay fan. I'm a Steven Weber fan. I, I think it's great. So, yeah, I, I don't think you can compare it to the Kubrick film, but I but I love it just as much in its own way. Yeah. And I'm extremely excited for Mike Flanagan's Dr. Sleep coming up this oh, fall. I know. Yeah, I'm so yeah. curious. I'm overwhelmed with curiosity as to what that's going to look and feel like. Yeah. Especially with Ewan McGregor. I, that's yeah, that's going to be amazing. But Ewan McGregor's in it. That's what I heard that he's playing Danny. Oh, Grown up Danny. That 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 sours me on it. Really? Are you serious? I thought I'm, I'm anti Ewan McGregor hardcore. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, this just in, people. <laughs> <laughs> I've talked about it on the show before. I'm I'm Team Riley Stearns. Gotcha. Uh yeah, it shows right here. Ewan McGregor, Danny Torrance. That sucks. <laughs> and Jacob Tremblay is gonna be in it. So Rebecca Ferguson is is uh, starring in it as well. So it's got a hell of a cast. Bruce Greenwood is coming back with uh Flanagan Love after Bruce doing, Greenwood after doing Gerald's Camp, so it's got a hell of a cast. Sorry to disappoint you, though, that uh, Danny Torrance will be played by Ewan McGregor. Well, I guess I'll have to watch it anyway. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've been boycotting him, but I'll, I'll watch that. Yeah, that, you'll, you'll make an exception. <laughs> I love Mike Flanagan, and despite disagreeing with his casting choice, I will be supporting Mike Flanagan. That's fair. Um, there were a lot of great comments that we didn't read. Obviously, those were just those specifically regarding favorite King adaptations. But we do thank everyone who commented on the Pet Cemetery episode. I think there's been some good conversation on there. Yeah. Yeah. Some fantastic ones. So thanks to everyone who commented on this episode and who entered this contest. And I guess we'll choose three winners for the Pet Cemetery 1989 digital downloads from the new restored 4K version of this movie. Yes, absolutely. So I guess we can each pick a winner, right? Oh, yeah, I suppose so. We each have a digital download. Dave, would you like to pick the first winner? All right. Let's see here. Yeah, mine was uh, sort of a last minute entry. It was originally two, uh, but I still had mine. I know last time I said I throw these away, but I, for some reason, kept this one. All right. So 
my digital download will go to, let's see who we come up with here, uh, The Gray Man. Very nice. Greg the Gray Man from Ohio. Nice. All right. So I will, I have my uh, digital download here. Okay. Wolfman, you have somebody? Yeah. And I will go with Dina. All right, buddy. Get in touch. Yes. And then the final winner, as I spin the wheel of death and doom and destruction, see it's ticking away. And we have Ashley, barely Ashley. Now, I know that you're a big fan, Ashley, of Pet Cemetery, but. You are apparently a big fan of digital codes. So if you don't have this, it is yours. You are the winner of it. If you do, let us know and we will gift it to someone else. Sure. So Dino, Barely Ashley, and the Gray Man, if you could get in touch with us at horrormoviecast at gmail.com, we will get you these digital downloads for Pet Cemetery 1989. Thank you to everyone who entered. And it turns out, I guess we'll be doing this a lot more in the future since all three of us toss our digital downloads (laughs) since we don't apparently know how to value something that actually has value (laughs) (laughs) yes so thank you to everybody for participating in that and congratulations to the winners so gentlemen before we sail off into the sunset and give everybody our plugs and all that good stuff do you have any things you want to add here at the end just a thank you to everybody who uh sent in a pick at your mercy i mean we're still getting some and uh really to get almost a hundred titles is amazing and we really do thank you and yes it there were some people who who recommended you know several uh but a lot of movies i've never seen some i've never heard of and that's awesome you know we think we're we're sort of covering the gamut here on uh hmp and and like he said we realize that there's there's still a lot out there to uh to be found to be explored yeah, it'll be exciting. I mean, we appreciate all the entries. We'll post all of them in the show notes so people can check out what the other listeners' recommendations were. And we will still be selecting four more for our next installment coming up right away on HMP. But uh, yeah, so stay tuned to see what the selections are. And as we mentioned, several of them are planned for upcoming themed episodes. So uh, we'll be hitting a lot of these absolutely all right so wolfman you want to tell everybody where they can find you online yeah find me on social media at icarus arts you can find me on twitter letterboxd instagram and facebook uh get in touch it's a good time i also just want to remind people who may have forgotten we have t-shirts we i know joel gives the plug at the end of the show every time but uh, we've got some cool ones. They were designed by listeners. We've got some really talented listener artists and they donated their talent so that we could all enjoy. And I, I was reminded of it this week because Raul, whose list we read uh, during the Stephen King feedback, he wore his horror movie podcast t-shirt to Pet Cemeteries and sent us a selfie from that. And I'll be posting the photo of Raul in the show notes so that people can can go and look at him and just just stare just <laughs> just just look at his face and, and <laughs> contemplate <laughs> whatever they want it's really up to you what you take from the photo you know i'm, I'm just posting there for your perusal <laughs> anyway uh thanks to raul for getting that t-shirt it, it supports the show and yeah, it's just fun you. to have 
the HMP name out there in the universe. We love it. We get photographs of listeners wearing their shirts to horror conventions or any horror movie. And it's just fun. Uh, It's fun to see it out in the world. So thank you to Raul. Thanks to everyone else who supports us with the horror movie podcast t-shirts at Teespring. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, Dave, I'll let everybody know where they can find you. Check out dvdinfatuation.com where I have my 2,500 reviews. Uh, 2,502 now, actually. So I'm on a roll. (laughs) Also on Twitter, at DVD Infatuation. Almost on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Letterboxd. You can uh, hear me on other podcasts, the We Deal in Lead Western podcast, the uh, upcoming return of the Universal Monsters cast, and of course, Land of the Creeps with uh, Greg Amortis, Haddonfield Hatchet, Jesse Robbins, Justin Beam. Uh, Bill is a new uh, addition to this show, and he's been a great addition thus far. And you can hear that at landofthecreeps.blogspot.com. I do want to mention that uh, Monsters Cast, the original nine episodes are posted. Our website was taken up by malware, which is what led to our extreme year-long hiatus, mostly just because I didn't have time to deal with the malware issues and so we got way behind but i was able to get all those episodes reposted they are not at universalmonsterscast.com which was our original website they are at monsterscast.libsyn.com which is l-i-b-s-y-n.com and you can find all those episodes if you want to catch up before we start posting new episodes Yes, thank you very much for doing that, Josh. And I can also be found there uh, along with these two wonderful chaps, uh, as well as with a couple other wonderful chaps who probably are wearing chaps as we podcast. And that is on Rush. <laughs> that is Daryl and Peter. <laughs> they got to love me, don't they? Uh, Daryl and Peter over on Retro Movie Geek, where we're always proving that uh assless chaps can make a comeback yeah assless chaps can make a comeback (laughs) and why when you drop a child on its head it grows up to podcast like we do so yes (laughs) thank you everyone for listening and we love reading and responding to your comments so we hope you'll get involved in the horror movie podcast community it is truly a great group of people you can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com where you can find this and all 173 of our past episodes you can connect with us on twitter and instagram at horrormoviecast And if you'd like to support Horror Movie Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. You can get your listener designed, just like Wolfman Josh said, HMP t-shirts at teespring.com forward slash stores forward slash Horror Movie Cast. You can also become a patron of Movie Podcast Network for only $2.50 a month, which will give you access to the Movie Podcast Network's monthly special features episodes at patreon.com slash movie podcast network we want to thank singer songwriter fred ingram for the use of his music for the horror movie podcast theme song you can find more fred's music at frederickingram.com we also want to thank composer kagan breitenbach for his arrangement and orchestration of fred's original theme which opens the show you can find more of kagan's work at kaganbreitenbach.com 
And that's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again Monday after next for the second part of our At Your Mercy coverage, where we'll continue to review even more listener-suggested movies. Thank you for joining us for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. It was fascinating, not to get religious, this isn't, Jay of the Dead on the show, but I, w- I went to church on Easter Sunday and I was sitting there listening to people talk about the resurrection of Jesus and how uh, in doing so he broke the bonds of death and allowed so that all people could live again. And there was so much pain and almost desperation in people's voices as they talked about seeing their loved ones again this woman who was speaking, she, she almost fell over while she was speaking because she's so ill, you know, and some her grandson had to rush up to the, to the podium and like help her. So she didn't fall over and kind of talking about, you know, her body, like being perfected again in a resurrected state. There's this deep emotional human fear of death. That's at the heart of what, why horror works. I think on us at all. Mm -hmm. And this promise of a holy resurrection really put a fine point on what I love so much about this tale of unholy resurrection mm-hmm. in Pet Cemetery and how just it's just such a relatable concept. We would all do what Lewis does. We yes. would all want to bring our sweet innocent child back. We would all want to bring our spouse back. If we thought there was a chance that we could, you would want to take that chance, even knowing the devastating risks involved. I also have this little fantasy, you know, there's a little postscript at the end of the Hooper film about what happens to some of the characters after the film. And I always had this little fantasy that, John Carpenter's Vampires is a direct sequel to <laughs> Salem's Lot several years later. That's cool. And that uh, Stakeland is a direct sequel to John Carpenter's Vampires several years after that. So that's <laughs> my, my little universe that I've created. I'm curious where James Wan will take his oh, that's cool. Salem's Lot universe. <laughs> you know what? That that's a great that's a great triple feature right there. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. One thing I always wanted to do on Movie Podcast Network was do like a a little special on Mormon movies because I think it's such a weird niche of filmmaking. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. the Christian movie movement and some are good. Most, in my opinion, are not. And I would say similarly with Mormon movies, uh, there are some are good, most are not. But I think one interesting thing about Mormon movies to me is that there are several genre films. And one of those that I really love was a film called Brigham City and it was a film that is about a small town where the the religious leader of the town is also the sheriff of the town and when the peace of the community is disrupted by a murder all of these questions about the innocence of this place are disrupted and, and they had this community that's never had to deal with any suspicion of one another is suddenly thrown into uh, this kind of fever pitch. Anyway, the film is highly influenced by Silver Bullet. And I think it's a weird suggestion. 
I know at least one of our listeners, Sal Roma, has seen it uh, based on my recommendation. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he loved it. I think he gave it like a seven or something. But um, it would be a really fascinating double feature, I think. And I would love for someone who has no Mormonism background to tell me what they thought of that as a double feature. Because especially someone who's really familiar with Silver Bullet, it's not like a remake of Silver Bullet or anything, not like a sly remake, but there are so many echoes of it Hmm. uh, in the content that I just, I found it personally fascinating. So that'd be fun. I'd love, I'd love to hear what people think. Wilford Brimley's in it. So that's a fun thing as well. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, that'd be fun to do, actually. Check out Brigham City with Silver Bullet and let me know. I actually think I tried to find Brigham City when you first recommended it, and I couldn't track it down. There was no, it wasn't available streaming at the time, I think. Um, I don't know that it is now either. I, I have the DVD. <laughs> you can borrow it. <laughs> I can borrow it. I'll, I'll be over there in a little bit. I'll borrow you. I think Sal has ways of finding things, much like Peter. So, I got you. Okay. Um, there are probably ways you could track it down. Yeah, because I, I just uh, I just did it in the old Google machine, and it it does. It, you know, normally it'll come up and it'll show you where places you can stream it. It currently has none. So okay. I do you see that the DVD is available on Amazon for ninety seven dollars and sixty eight cents. And I will say that hypothetically, (laughs) well, well, I, I will say that hypothetically the YouTube shows it uh, with a thumbnail that says two hours and two, two hours and two seconds. So I'm not sure if that's the actual movie or not, but later on I might click on it and see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to list just one. Yes, it is. (laughs) It's like Oreos or is it? Pringles. That's yeah, hard to eat just one. Yes, or is that uh, <laughs> is, is that a potato chip thing? Is it like a Dorito? I don't know. <laughs> I think that's Lay's. Oh, Lay's. Chip. Okay, sure. Wow. 